Before we get into this episode, we have a quick favor to ask you. If you love our show, please scroll down to the review section of your favorite podcast platform and leave us a five-star rating. If you have a few more seconds, please also leave us a review telling us what you like most about our show. We read every single one of these and we appreciate them so much. This will also help us grow and get into the ears of those who love true crime and food as much as you do. Thanks and enjoy the episode. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years, too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. You're listening to Unsavory, where true crime meets food. Welcome back to another episode of Unsavory. I'm Becca. And I'm Sarah. And we're two dietitians talking about true crime and food. Today's episode is surprising in a lot of ways because when I chose this topic, I kind of thought, oh, it'll be a sort of easy topic. I wanted a light one. And I thought I knew a lot. But it turns out I was wrong on both accounts because I knew very little. (laughs) It was shocking. And the research took me so like I just the wormholes, like the actual story is very concise. But then I was like, oh, this is an interesting, I don't know, detour that's still kind of food related. So, yeah, I think (laughs) you're going to be pleasantly surprised. Oh, good. Because I'm looking over here and I see a lot of pages of notes. Mm-hmm. I'm excited, but I honestly didn't know that there was this much information about scurvy out there. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, it's all about scurvy. And that's the thing, because I think everyone knows scurvy or mm-hmm. at least a little bit about it. It must have been covered in like elementary school history class because, you know, most of us know, I think that 
It's vitamin C deficiency. Your gums will bleed. It happens to sailors. That's the general gist. But there's more. And there is scandal. Well, thank goodness. So Beck is going to start out by giving us a little history lesson on the discovery of vitamins, which I think is actually cool because they're not that old. Mm-mm. We think of vitamins as something that I like, at least I do, that have been around forever. You just got to get your vitamins, eat your fruits and vegetables, get your vitamins. But they're, I mean, barely over 100 years old. No, it, it is crazy because I think about like some of the more recent vitamins mm-hmm. were like being isolated and discovered when our parents were like almost when our parents were born or when our parents were young, yeah. which is wild. It is wild. And the mm-hmm. idea like before vitamins were really discovered, the idea of being deficient in a vitamin wasn't even on people's radar. No, it wasn't. Which is cool. And then I am going to tell the tale of how millions of people died from a disease that could have been prevented by just eating some fruit and vegetables. It's a fascinating story. But that's what makes the story, I think, good is that it's it's so simple. But it's so frustrating because you don't know what you don't know. Mm-hmm. The information in this podcast is for entertainment and educational purposes only. If you're interested in medical nutrition therapy or personalized nutrition advice, please talk to a physician or registered dietitian in your area. If you have a history of disordered eating, be advised that nutrition details will be discussed and take the steps you need to protect your recovery journey. All the citations and relevant links for anything mentioned in this episode will be in our show notes on our website, unsavorypodcast.com. This podcast may contain coarse language, mature subject matter, and content of a violent or disturbing nature. Listener discretion is advised. This is an independently produced podcast. If you'd like to donate to the podcast, you can sign up as a donor through the Patreon link in our bio. If you could rate, review, follow, and share our show with your true crime and food-loving friends, that would really help us out, and we will be forever grateful. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. So we have discussed vitamins super briefly in our eighth episode on superfoods and the avocado cartels. But we didn't get into the nitty gritty. And I, I don't even think that we mentioned vitamin C in that episode, which is a pretty notorious micronutrient when it comes down to things like health claim propaganda. Oh, yeah. But first, we'll get into some history. So vitamins were first discovered in the late 1880s when scientists started to realize that not all diseases were linked to microorganisms. So not all of them could be explained by germ theory. Certain conditions like anemia and scurvy weren't linked to identifiable pathogens, so scientists just kind of kept looking for answers. In 1889, a Dutch physician named Christian 
Eichmann, began looking into the condition known as beriberi. This condition kind of caused weight loss, fatigue, confusion, and um, sometimes was related to death. He found that areas of the world that consumed more refined rice were experiencing higher instances of this disease. When he started doing tests on chickens, he found that the ones who consumed refined rice rather than unrefined rice were more likely to develop symptoms similar to beriberi in humans. His colleague, Mr. Grins, it's a weird mm-hmm. word, then suggested that maybe it had something to do with the bran of the rice, which is removed or often removed during the refining process. So the bran is like the outer shell of the grain. So it, it is kind of what we know now contains like a lot of the like fiber and B vitamins. A few years later in 1906, a biochemist named Frederick Hopkins, he linked beriberi to scurvy, stating that certain diets lacking in quote unquote accessory food factors could lead to these diseases. Then in the early 1910s, Casimir Funk coined the word vitamin for nitrogen-containing organic molecules needed in tiny amounts in our diets to maintain health. Now, the word vitamin was a combination of the words vital and amine, and um, researchers soon did discover that not all vitamins have amine structures, but the term had already stuck, so they kept the term vitamin or vitamin and dropped the E. Okay, that's cool. But can we talk about the name Casimir Funk? I know. It's that, the best name. That is the best name. He's a Mr. Doctor, Funk. Dr. Funk. Dr. Funk. That's better than Mr. Sounds Funk. Sounds like a DJ. <laughs> Sounds like a fun guy. <laughs> okay, so Eichmann and Grin's theories around beriberi were tested using the concept of vitamins. And vitamin B1, also known as thiamine, was born. And FYI, beriberi is a thiamine deficiency, if that wasn't clear. So in 1913, a biochemist named Elmer McCollum found that there were two different types of vitamins, water-soluble and fat-soluble. So water-soluble vitamins are those that dissolve in water, and fat-soluble vitamins act more like an oil and therefore don't dissolve in water. Uh, Fat-soluble vitamins are more easily stored in our fatty tissue and in our liver, though, whereas water-soluble vitamins aren't as easily stored at all. So a lot of water-soluble vitamins that we consume in excess are often excreted through our urine. Yes. And that's sometimes you'll have a multivitamin and then you'll notice that your pee is neon yellow. Have you ever (laughs) noticed that? Which vitamin makes your pee neon yellow? I'm pretty sure it's B and C. B and C? Okay. Yeah, the water-solubles. And so if you have excess, like your kidneys are just going to get rid of that. Yeah. Yeah, no, that makes sense. No, I've definitely noticed discoloration in in my (laughs) urine sometimes. Or like when you have beets. I'm sorry. Oh, yeah. No, that's alarming. That's what is it? Anthrocyanin? Yeah, that sounds right. Asparagus doesn't change the color, but it changes the smell. And I'm pretty sure it only changes the smell in some people. I actually think that we may have discussed this fact on the podcast before, but I think that only 50% of people have the chemical that makes your pee smell when you have asparagus, but then also only 50% of people can pick up on it. So I think there's only like 25% or something of the population that can do both, make their pee smell and smell it. Okay, well, I am one of them. (laughs) Me too. I just had asparagus. This is why we're friends. (laughs) Gosh, we're so unique. (laughs) Okay, so at this point, vitamin research started to go like a little bit bonkers. 
So scientists were racing to isolate new vitamins so that they could benefit from like similar fame that Dr. Funk was getting. (laughs) But it wasn't until the 1930s that vitamin C, our vitamin of the day, was officially discovered. And this really took a long time because scientists were trying to figure out what caused this scurvy state even before the 1900s. Long before the 1900s, I can confirm. I'm sure you're going to tell me how long before. Oh, I will. And (laughs) it's actually wild. Vitamin C is, it's the most popular vitamin. Everyone knows vitamin C, right? Yeah, for sure. But it's not even 100 years old. Not even 100 years old. And I was was just thinking like, it's not the oldest vitamin either. So it's kind of crazy that we know so much about vitamin C, whereas like before going to study dietetics, I didn't really know much about thiamine, which was or is the first discovered vitamin. Yeah, B vitamins need a better PR team. Other than B12, B12's got it on lock, but like niacin, thiamine. I feel like even iron and stuff is picking up traction. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I wonder who brands these things. Vitamin companies, obviously. That was a dumb question. Yeah. It's just interesting how some stick and others don't. And I also think about this time where scientists are like trying to discover the next isolated vitamin. And I almost think of it as like people now trying to discover the next superfood. Totally. Something that is so normal to us was cutting edge science and you could be the next one. And I think it kind of reminds me of like how we're working on sequencing DNA and things like that, or I'm pretty sure it's all sequenced. I don't even know. I'm not up to date on my genetics, but like (laughs) CRISPR technology, for example, like that was cutting edge and still is pretty dang cool. But that was what discovering vitamins at the time was. Yeah. And what is super interesting is like there still might be vitamins that we haven't discovered yet. That makes me excited. Doesn't it? So excited for the future. Okay. You know what? You just reminded me, total tangent, but parenteral nutrition, which Uh is nutrition to the vein. I know Becca knows this, but just in case you're listening and don't know what that is. (laughs) Yeah. So it's putting nutritional substances yeah. In an IV through your vein. Yes. And it's a solution. So it's really got like the most elemental forms of amino acids, dextrose, and fatty acids. Everything you need if you're unable to eat and use your digestive tract. So I was talking to my colleague who's been in dietetics for a while. And she was like, when I started my career, that wasn't a thing. Wow. You just, parenteral nutrition wasn't a thing. So they had to like learn that on the go. And then when it was a thing, they didn't add fats to it. And so that was like when they figured out how to add SMOF, like the, the fatty acids that are commonly used, they had to learn how to do that. And so like wow. what's going to happen in our career lifetime that isn't even a concept right now? That's wild. Isn't that cool? That is I never even cool. thought of it being so new, but it is pretty new. It is pretty new. Okay. So this researcher, Albert St. Georgie isolated ascorbic acid or vitamin C in the 1930s and discovered that it had a lot of links to our metabolism. So much so that he won a Nobel Prize in 1937 for his work in this area, including his discovery of certain reactions in the citric acid cycle, aka the Krebs cycle, which are like the chemical reactions essentially needed to release our stored energy to our cells. AKA the bane of every science student's existence. Like We truly have this guy to like partially blame for (laughs) late nights studying, trying to memorize Mm -hmm. that stupid but necessary cycle. Yeah. I never refer to it, but I'm sure. Yeah. I mean, it's necessary to our existence. That is true. I never refer to it. Mm -hmm. But I know it's there. 
happening yeah. all the time. So vitamin C was a super huge discovery because it did have a lot of benefits to our health and continues to today. It allows for our bodies to more efficiently use its carbohydrates, fat, and protein. Uh, it's an antioxidant, and it plays a very important role in the growth of our bones, teeth, gums, and blood vessels. And it also plays a role in collagen formation, which impacts the functioning of all of our organs. Yes, it does. So very important. Mm -hmm. Vitamin C is a water-soluble vitamin, so we don't really keep stores of it. Uh, the recommended daily allowance ranges from 75 to 120 milligrams for adults, depending on sex and whether or not someone is pregnant or lactating or is a smoker, because smokers need more vitamin C. And even though most excess vitamin C is excreted, there is an upper limit of 2,000 milligrams. So toxicity is unlikely, but there are a few concerns around having too much of it in the body. So some people might experience things like GI distress if they have too much, and it may also play a role in kidney stone formation. But one of the biggest concerns of having excess vitamin C in the body is that it increases non-heme iron absorption. And this isn't a huge concern for the majority of healthy individuals, but for some conditions like hemochromatosis, it may actually increase iron absorption to the point of tissue damage. Wow. That is so interesting. Really interesting. Hemochromatosis, if you don't know, is like the when you keep too much iron in your body. So essentially, if you have too much vitamin C and you're absorbing even more, it might put people over the edge, I guess. So despite some of these effects, the wellness world has really pushed the idea that excess vitamin C can improve immunity, specifically against the common cold. And it is a bit of a controversial statement to say this because it isn't really true. So studies have shown that the incidence or likelihood of you catching a cold aren't decreased with vitamin C, but there is some evidence that the duration and severity of symptoms may be decreased. The current research does not link these benefits to excessive amounts of vitamin C, though. So it actually might be more of a result of general nourishment while you're sick that decreases the symptoms and the longevity of the cold. So interesting. That's like such a common misconception. I feel like at the first sign of sniffles, people go out and they're like, I need my emergency. I need, you know, vitamin C. I need orange juice. They just want to get it all in them. And really, you just have to have an adequate amount of vitamin C on a regular basis. Mm -hmm. Exactly. My thing is more oregano oil. I don't know if you've tried the, the drops in the back of your throat. I've tried the drops. <laughs> I've tried the drops. I've gotten the pizza burps. Nothing wrong with that. <laughs> Except when you're like you do your oregano drops in the morning and then you're having your smoothie and then you're also having like <laughs> oregano burps and it's like this is weird. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Uh, but for me personally, I feel like that actually works. I don't know. I actually don't know the science behind it, but I feel like when you have a tickle and you put yeah. that down there, it feels like it's just like burning the tickle away. I don't know. I'll try it next time. Maybe we should investigate. <laughs> Maybe we should. And not just like say things, Willy make claims on this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, on that note, I'm going to let you take it away. Oh, okay, thank you. Good job. That was a fantastic intro. Now scurvy. And something I didn't expect for researching this, this whole scurvy episode, I feel like I had a lot of expectations. I was like, I'm going to go into this in and out. Easy story, nice and concise. But A, lots of wormholes. But B, so much frustration. Because 
it's just vitamin C. It's just a simple orange every single day or a lemon or a lime or a red pepper or a kiwi or any source of vitamin C could have saved millions and millions of lives. It feels different to me. Like it's not like, okay, polio. And then we discovered the polio vaccine. It's like, well, we didn't have the vaccine before. So there was no option, but we've always had fruit and we've always had vegetables. And it's like the so many lives could have been saved by something that was just right there. And it's it's wild to me because you said something about a couple million, mm-hmm, two people million at least lost minimum. their lives, which is crazy to me thinking like these people really weren't eating fruits and vegetables. But if you didn't know that you needed to, why, why would you, I guess? <laughs> you don't know what you don't know. Or they just didn't have access, which is more more common. Mm-hmm. So yeah, researching this made me want to go back in time and grab the sailors by the shoulders and just be like, it's lemons. Like, eat some lemons, please. <laughs> oh, but I know. Yeah. We're so thankful that we have like the food processing mm-hmm. capabilities that we have now. Yes. Because I feel like we would maybe have scurvy if we didn't have the ability to transport food or can it or yes. cure it or you know what I mean? Well, that's the thing. I mean, I love fruit. I'd probably always eat it. But we live in Canada. There mm-hmm. is half of a year, give or take, where it's not easy to access fruit and vegetables. Mm-hmm. And so the indigenous peoples of Canada had their own cures or prevention, which I'm going to talk about a little bit later. It's it's super cool. Honestly, the history of scurvy is really, really fascinating. Um, but it just feels, with the benefit of hindsight, it feels so obvious. <laughs> And you'll see what I mean in a bit. Okay. Yay. So, okay, let's do this. I'm actually very intrigued. You've really talked up this topic, so. Yes, 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 yes. Okay, so scurvy is basically worse than I ever expected. The main symptom that I knew about scurvy was the bleeding of the gums. But it's the why the bleeding of the gums happens that's actually quite alarming and very, very devastating. So scurvy is basically the slow and painful disintegration of the entire body. Vitamin C is a nutrient that the human body must obtain from food, and it's required to form blood vessels, cartilage, muscle, collagen, bones. Not necessarily directly, but it impacts all of those different tissues that make up our entire body. So one of the earliest symptoms is actually an intense debilitating fatigue so strong that people once thought that laziness and sleeping too much were actually causing scurvy, but instead these people were already suffering from the early stages of it. Oh gosh, could you imagine? Yeah. Like you're experiencing scurvy fatigue and mm-hmm. your partner is like, get up, we gotta go, yeah. we gotta prevent this. You're too and how lazy, draining you're that gonna would get be. scurvy. Oh my God, <sighs> be so annoyed. The collagen in the skin starts to break down and structures like blood vessels that also utilize collagen become weak and porous. Little blood blisters start to form under the skin that eventually develop into painful ulcers. The gums, of course, begin to break down. They'll sag and swell over the teeth, uh, leaking putrid blood and eventually becoming black. And breath becomes absolutely foul as bacteria thrive on gingivitis. The hair on your arms and legs can become wiry and might bleed at the hair follicles, a phenomenon known as corkscrew hairs. 
Previously smooth and solid bones become porous like a sponge, leaving them more susceptible to breaking. Joints swell and become painful, and the body retains water as it works hard to hang on to every last bit of vitamin C that it can. On the inside, the arteries and capillaries begin to decay as collagen is no longer available to support their structure, causing major cardiovascular damage. And at any moment, someone with scurvy could suffer a seizure or an aneurysm. And as the disease progresses, those suffering from scurvy become irritable, depressed, and begin to hallucinate. So dreams become vivid, much like in the Minnesota starvation experiment. Individuals dream of food only to wake up and find that there's none available. And even if there was, their essentially rotting mouths would have a hard time chewing it. Gosh, this is no joke. (laughs) I know. I really tried to paint a picture of how this is like this disease that is almost a joke in like popular culture. I have totally said like, "Ah, it's probably scurvy or like, oh, you're going to get scurvy to like Mm -hmm. my picky brother. (laughs) And it's not. It's terrible, terrible disease. Sounds pretty brutal. An expert on scurvy in the 17th century named Thomas Willis called scurvy a falling down of the whole soul. Because formerly strong, young humans, mostly men, would crumble and succumb to this slow and painful disease. Wounds can reopen and may never heal as the immune system becomes less effective. Eyesight becomes blurry and individuals become sensitive to light. And as the disease continues into its final stages, victims experience jaundice, full body pain, tooth loss, internal bleeding, delirium, organ failure, coma, and eventually and almost mercifully death, at which point they are probably tossed into the sea. And all of this could have been avoided by sending sailors off to sea with some lemons or limes. It's Uh, frustrating. That is very frustrating. Yeah. I mean, maybe you'll get into this, but like Mm -hmm. how long would it take somebody being completely deficient in vitamin C to go through all of the symptoms that you just mentioned? Definitely a couple months. Mm -hmm. Seems to be pretty person dependent because some people do survive scurvy and make it to land, whereas some people succumb much more quickly. And I do get into different aspects later, but it was really tricky on these long sea voyages to tease away what was specifically scurvy and what was also another micronutrient deficiency or an infection on the boat or food poisoning. Like there's all these different other things, but it is a slow decline. Yeah. And like they may have survived that given time without vitamin C, but had they continued to be deficient in that nutrient, they likely would not have survived. So like it sounds like if you're deficient in vitamin C, you will die unless you get it ultimately. Yes. Is that a correct statement? Because you don't don't produce it. We do not produce it. Eventually, you will succumb unless you get a source of vitamin C. The chance of death is 100% in all of us. So That's true. <laughs> okay, a fun fact. If something is related to or affected by scurvy, it's referred to as scorbutic. So the symptoms of scurvy are scorbutic symptoms, and something that prevents scurvy, like vitamin C, could be called an antiscorbutic. So vitamin C is also known as ascorbic acid, and ascorbic actually translates to antiscorbutic. So ah. that's why vitamin C is called ascorbic acid. Oh my gosh, so many cool word breakdowns in this episode. So many cool word. It's basically an anti-scurvy acid. 
That's what it means. Yeah. Okay, so before we knew that vitamin C caused scurvy, most people had no idea why sailors were being stricken with this terrible disease. During the age of scurvy, which was from about 1500 to 1800, the problem was so common that ship owners and governments actually anticipated a 50% death rate from scurvy for their sailors on any major voyage. But scurvy didn't just magically appear in the 1500s. For as long as there have been humans, scurvy has been a possibility because humans do not synthesize vitamin C. So it's kind of interesting because the age of scurvy conveniently coincides with the age of discovery or age of exploration. Gotcha. Yeah. (laughs) So between the 1500s and 1800s, extensive overseas exploration emerged as a powerful factor in European culture. Long seaward voyages, sometimes spanning many years, were made possible through technological advancements like an improved ship design and the magnetic compass. Another invention I never think of, but I think of something that has like always been there. But ships were able to head out to sea for significantly longer periods of time. And of course, fresh fruit and vegetables would quickly spoil so they weren't on board ships for very long. During these years, sailors' diets consisted mostly of dry and preserved foods, so typically a combination of meats, fats, carbohydrates, and alcohol that varied based on their home country. So most fleets, most European fleets, included beer, wine, or rum, often instead of water because the water would go really stale in the barrels, or what they would do is dilute the alcohol with water, but you were pretty much drinking alcohol at all times, just because it was safer. (laughs) Fun party boat for the most part. Oh my gosh, they sound awful. I would never go on a a long seaward voyage in the 15 to 1800s. (laughs) Oh, me neither. I get seasick. They would also serve salted anchovies and salted cod, pickled or salted beef and pork, oatmeal, rice, peas, which I was pleasantly surprised to see, which actually does contain some vitamin C. Half a cup contains about 13% of the recommended dietary intake. Cheese. And sometimes live animals would be brought along for their milk if there was enough space on the boat. The peas and the unpasteurized milk would provide a small amount of vitamin C, but not enough to meet sailors' needs long term. And often these items would run out and they were rationed. So if a half cup provides 13% of the RDI, they were probably getting half a cup a day until the peas ran out kind of thing. They weren't meeting 100% of their needs. And I'm just thinking like if you brought a cow on board, Mm -hmm. you'd have to feed the cow. Got to feed the cow. You have to bring so much food for the cow. True. That's a good point. Yeah. So if it was a small boat, it wasn't going to happen. Additionally, almost every ship had something called ship's bread or hardtack biscuits, also known as survival bread. So this is a simple type of biscuit or cracker made from just flour and water, sometimes salt, if you're lucky. Ship's bread is inexpensive and long-lasting, and it was also lovingly named worm castles because insects would often lay their larvae in these dry biscuits, and they would be filled with little worms. Not ideal, but food couldn't really be wasted on these ships, so sailors would break up the ship's bread and drop it into their morning coffee, and this would help soften the hard bread, but it would also allow the little larvae to float to the top And then the soldiers could scoop out the insects and eat their bread. Wow. (laughs) (laughs) 
so disgusting. I know. Oh, it sounds gross. <laughs> Desperate times. I'm just trying to paint a picture here of how much I am so glad I wasn't born a sailor in the 15 to 1800s. We got lucky. Who knows? Maybe we were in a past life. We don't know that. Yeah, true. Maybe that's why I'm so averse to it. <laughs> so as you can see from the diets that sailors were eating aboard most European ships, the absence of vitamin C was a major failure. Often, ship captains would do their best to stock up on fresh fruits and vegetables whenever they docked, but for millions of sailors, that was not enough to fend off scurvy. So a minimum of 2 million sailors died from scurvy during the age of scurvy. And the numbers are likely much, much higher because deaths at sea often went unaccounted for. And it wasn't just the Royal Navy ships that were affected. Things like pirate ships were also impacted, but pirates don't keep great records. <laughs> so the numbers are actually very likely much higher than 2 million, but that's a minimum estimate. Yeah, I've said it a couple times now, but it's so heartbreaking and frustrating to think of all these deaths with the advantage of time and science and just knowing that the simplest cure was right there. Like even a massive vat of sauerkraut would have been a good supplement or potatoes mm -hmm. have a decent amount of that vitamin C. It would have been C. an easy one. It would have been an easy one. Okay, so a bit of an aside, but when I was researching the naval diets of the 15 to 1800s, I was surprised that potatoes weren't included, especially when you consider that a small potato has about 33 milligrams of vitamin C. So that would mean that three small or two medium potatoes in a day would have been enough to prevent scurvy. And potatoes store in a cool, dry space for a fairly long period of time. So I looked into why potatoes rarely appeared in sea rations and learned that it wasn't until the 19th century that potatoes were considered an acceptable food to eat by the English. And this was partially because when potatoes sprout and form those little arms and start to turn green. Spuds. Little spuds. <laughs> and then they get exposed to light they actually become poisonous. And there are instances in which people have died from eating sprouted potatoes. But I had friends that would, like, I remember one friend in particular that would always be like, you can't eat the green chip. It's poisonous. So maybe they were onto something. I definitely probably would have eaten a green potato back in the 1500s. For sure. Also, people, many English people, I guess, at this time thought of potatoes as good food for the poor people. So they were kind of mm. snooty about potatoes, which, I don't know, they maybe could have stayed, saved some lives if they had been more yeah. open. Yeah, being open-minded could have saved their lives. It's unfortunate. To add another layer of frustration to the sheer volume of scurvy deaths, there are plenty of cultures around the world that had found ways to overcome and prevent scurvy using their own traditional foods. And these cures or preventative measures were pretty well known and sometimes even documented prior to the age of scurvy. So one of the earliest documented mentions of scurvy is from an Indian scientist named Susruta, who described scurvy as early as 600 BC. So we're going way back. Wow. The Norwegians documented scurvy, which they called, and I will butcher this, I'm so sorry, skirbuger? I tried to Google it. Google pronunciation didn't have any options for me. So I'm going with we'll just go with that. <laughs> it as, sounds right. <laughs> it sounds right to me. As early as 1000 AD. 
So the Norse Vikings actually believed that scurvy was caused by eating too much skir, which is the Norse word for sour milk. And you might recognize from that brand of Icelandic style Greek yogurt or yes. sorry, Icelandic yogurt that's thick and creamy and it's so delicious, but that's called skir. It's so good. I was on a skir like kick rampage yeah. protein pack. Year. I used to eat so much of it. It is delicious. It is really good. Skier was often used as a source of nutrition on long Viking voyages. And so they thought that too much caused Skierburger. Nope, Ski. Wait, what did I decide on? Skierbuger. And the <laughs> buger part actually means edema, which is fluid retention and swelling. So it was on long sea expeditions that Viking sailors got Skierbuger or sour milk swelling is the literal translation. And it was scurvy. Wow. I know. So it's documented ages ago. And to overcome this phenomenon, the Vikings figured out that cloudberries, which look kind of like an orangey pink raspberry, they're very pretty, and they're native to Arctic tundra and boreal forest regions, could prevent skierbuger. I'm certain I'm saying <laughs> I love like so the wrong. accent you put on that. <laughs> I feel like you have to, because how else do you say it's S-K-Y-R-B-J-U-G-R. Skierbugier. Yeah. I don't know. There's no other way to say it, I don't think. I don't know. Land scurvy was also common in places that experienced long winters, like northern Norway. And they had figured out that wild plants and cabbage could prevent scurvy. And of course, the wild berries like the cloudberries. So what they would do is cook the berries to basically a jam. They'd make a jam from the cloud berries and then preserve the jam by covering it with a layer of butter so that it wouldn't be spoiled by airborne microbes. And this jam was an effective remedy against scurvy that could last the winter, and it was often served with reindeer milk. Again, just like little fun facts <laughs> reindeer that made me milk. like, uh, <laughs> I know. I never really thought of no, reindeers producing milk before. Obviously, they do. Another legend claims that on one of Columbus's voyages, many of his sailors had become ill with scurvy. And so they asked to be dropped off on a random island to die instead of having to die on the ship. So Columbus dropped them off and sailed away. And then months later, when they were passing by on their way back to Europe, the same men that they had dropped off were healthy and jumping up and down, waving at them from the shore. And they'd been eating island fruits and made a full recovery from scurvy. And this island was called Curacao, which means cure. Oh, there we go. Wow. We go. That's interesting. Now, the indigenous peoples of North America had also been successfully preventing scurvy for ages before European explorers and settlers arrived on North American soil. And they'd been passing botanical remedies down through oral history for generations. But one of the first documented uses of indigenous medicine in North America was from the 1536 voyage led by Jacques Cartier, in which his crew was struck by scurvy. And he noted that some of the captured indigenous slaves were not dying from scurvy. And this was because they were drinking a traditional remedy, a tea made from boiling leaves and pine needles and bark from an evergreen tree known as Aneta. And it's likely that it was a white pine or a white spruce, also known as the tree of life. And according to an article in Medium written by Karina Vegavilla, Jacques Cartier asked a Huron native named Dom Agaya what the indigenous people were drinking and learned that it was this Aneta tree and this knowledge spread quickly among the sailors and it was reported as a European quote-unquote discovery. So this was kind of seen as 
the cure or one of the cures to scurvy. Scurvy. Yeah. It's like an early instance of cultural appropriation or mm-hmm. just Europeans being like, oh, we did that. <laughs> Little did Europeans know that like it was literally all around them when they were yeah. on land. Vitamin C. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. So we have throughout history all these documented instances of successful scurvy prevention and different traditional cures. But yet well into the 1700s, millions of people are dying from this easily preventable disease. So how is that possible? No Instagram. (laughs) No Instagram, exactly. No social media for concepts to spread like wildfire. (laughs) But there are a couple of reasons that scurvy and vitamin C were tricky to figure out. First of all, and the absolute coolest thing about vitamin C, in my opinion, is that most mammals can internally synthesize their own vitamin C. So like my cats, they eat nothing but meat. They never eat vitamin C. They're scared of vegetables, but they will never become vitamin C deficient because they are making their own. Mm-hmm. In fact, the only mammals that don't make their own vitamin C are humans, guinea pigs, fruit bats, and some primates, a phenomenon that some have called an inborn vitamin deficiency, and it's thought to be a quirk or an error of evolution. Huge error in Huge our evolution. Error, I know. It is so funny, though, that it's like, why guinea pigs? Why it's guinea pigs? Why so random? Bats? I know. So, of course, all the cats, the dogs, the mice and rats aboard the ships remained perfectly healthy without fruits and vegetables while the sailors around them fell one by one. Another factor that we talked about earlier is that vitamins weren't a thing yet. So people weren't really familiar with the idea that a lack of a food component could cause disease. And... Most diseases at this time were thought to be caused by things like sinful lifestyles, spiritual blockages, poor hygiene, and bad air. And so the idea that scurvy was being caused by a lack of something was just not even on people's radar. Mm -hmm. Many people actually believed that it was due to poor living conditions on the ships. So being far from land and eating excess preserved salted meats. And this idea led some to believe that scurvy was caused by the physical misery of the seaward voyages. And so some captains went to great lengths to keep ships clean and dry and warm. Others endorsed drinking seawater as a trick to curing scurvy, which only made things worse because now you've got scurvy and you're dehydrated. (laughs) Others even thought that scurvy was the result of extreme homesickness. I know. And some thought that the smell of soil and being on land could actually help scurvy, which led to the practice of earth bathing which is when they would literally bring a box of soil and strip the person with scurvy down, cover them in dirt, and let them bathe there, I guess. But of course, that did nothing. That is a very interesting tactic to... I know. Like, oh, you're homesick? Here's a box of dirt. (laughs) (laughs) Another factor that made it difficult to pinpoint the causation or even correlation is that once someone stops getting adequate vitamin C, it can take up to three months to show symptoms. So there's this huge leg in which all sorts of other different things are happening, including, like you mentioned, beriberi. Um, there's another niacin deficiency called pellagra. Mm-hmm. These could have also been occurring and no one would have really known at this time. And yet another complicating factor is that even though in some circles it was known that fruits and vegetables could prevent scurvy, the preservation techniques available at the time often destroyed much of the vitamin C. So maybe half of the vitamin C, sometimes even more, depending on things like how long they were boiled for. Yeah, because heat kills 
yeah. vitamin C. And um, I am going to come back to this point later when I tell you all about how the cure for scurvy was quote unquote discovered in what is known as the first clinical trial, which is kind of oh. cool. Yes. Okay. But first, I want to tell you the story of the Royal Navy's worst scurvy outbreak, George Anson's Voyage Around the World, which lasted from 1740 to 1744, in which 1,955 men set off and only 145 returned. Oh my gosh, that is not a good return rate. <laughs> That's a 92.5. Less than 10%. Less than 10%. It's a 92.5% death rate. Really devastating. And just FYI, there are hundreds of voyages during the age of scurvy that I could have chosen from. I just chose this one because it's, of course, devastating death toll. And it's fairly well documented. But if you want to learn more about other voyages, you'll have years of reading. <laughs> There's a lot of them. I got most of my information for this story from an article called The Age of Scurvy by Catherine Price in Science History Institute. An article by Dr. Eleonora Gordon called Scurvy and Anson's Voyage Round the World, 1740 to 1744, an analysis of the Royal Navy's worst outbreak. And I just want to recap how horrific this disease is with a quote from a surgeon who was stricken with scurvy and survived. And this quote is from a book by Stephen Bone called Scurvy, How a Surgeon, a Mariner, and a Gentleman Solved the Greatest Medical Mystery of the Age of Sail. Quote, It rotted all my gums, which gave out a black and putrid blood. My thighs and lower legs were black and gangrenous, and I was forced to use my knife each day to cut into the flesh in order to release this black and foul blood. Uh, I know. <laughs> I also used my knife on my gums, which were livid and growing over my teeth, when I had cut away this dead flesh and caused... Maybe I should have put a trigger warning. <laughs> and caused much black blood to flow. I rinsed my mouth and teeth with my urine, oh my rubbing them very hard. And the unfortunate thing was that I could not eat, desiring more to swallow than to chew. Many of our people died of it every day, and we saw bodies thrown into the sea constantly, three or four at a time. So this was wow. a, I know. That was, I mean, that was definitely like a little bit triggering at first. I know, I should, I was, I was reading it and I was like, this is bad. This is pretty gross. Uh, it was a foul disease and it really stripped people of the very fabric of their bodies and they quite literally like decomposed alive. It's, it's really awful. Okay, so the ill-fated voyage of Captain George Anson is considered one of the worst medical disasters at sea. In the mid-1700s, there was a serious shortage of men who were eager to go to sea, probably because they knew they were going to die of scurvy. No kidding. <laughs> and the conditions sucked. So in fact, the situation was so desperate that there were gangs called press gangs whose sole purpose was to kidnap men for sea. No. Yes. So as George, Captain George Anson looked for men to staff his six-ship voyage, he relied on kidnapped men coerced to join the Navy by press gangs. But because the shortage was so severe, the press gangs couldn't recruit enough men, and the voyage would require about 2,000 men, and at this point, they were short a couple hundred. So the Royal Navy came up with a rather horrifying solution and emptied out the nearby Chelsea Hospital, which was home to war veterans that were elderly and wounded and often suffering from mental health issues and could no longer serve in the marching regiments of the military. 
So even after these veterans were added to the group, they were still short about 200 men. So the Navy supplied 210 young Marines that were so inexperienced that they had allegedly never even been permitted to fire their weapons yet. (laughs) So that was the crew, his top tier crew. And now he could focus on his actual mission, which was to annoy and distress the Spanish colonies on the South American coasts by taking, sinking, burning, or otherwise destroying all their ships, to seize any Spanish settlements which might be vulnerable, and to capture Spanish treasure. Specifically, he was to track down and capture a Spanish ship so valuable that it was known as the prize of all the oceans, and it transported silver from Acapulco, Mexico, to Manila, Philippines. This sounds like the most brutal trip. It sounds like the most brutal trip. It also sounds like a movie. A ragtag team of sailors head out to sea to capture the treasure ship. Mm-hmm. It just sounds made up, but it really has happened. There, has a movie been made of this? I don't think so. Before the crew set sail from England, they had to repair some of the ships, which meant that during the six months of preparation, the crew was already eating from the rations. So when they finally departed in September 1740, it had already been months without access to a sufficient supply of fresh fruits and vegetables. The Navy at this point was well aware of what was called the scurvy. And so they supplied the ship with some of the most popular treatments of the time, something called an elixir of vitriol, which is a mixture of sulfuric acid and alcohol. Sounds horrendous. And a medicine called Ward's Drop-In Pill, which is basically just a laxative. And spoiler alert, both were useless. (laughs) I feel like that laxative would probably do more damage. Do more to absolutely. (laughs) Especially if they're taking it like every day to prevent scurvy. Gosh, yeah. (laughs) The disease officially began to hit the voyage as they rounded Cape Horn, which is it's well known for being a dangerous and turbulent stretch at the tip of South America. And the ship's chaplain, Richard Walter, was tasked with writing the voyage's official account. And he wrote that March 7th, I guess 1741, was the last cheerful day that the greatest part of us would ever live to enjoy. The next day, stormy weather struck fast and furiously with waves towering over the ships and they were forced off course. Once the storm started, they raged for three months, battering the men with rain, hail, and even snow, leaving some of the men with frostbite. Sorry, this was a three-month storm? Apparently, it's the stormy season. That is long. Yeah, that's a long storm. I don't know. (laughs) Did they not plan for this? Did they not, like, look at the calendar and they're like, oh, we maybe shouldn't go during stormy season? I just feel like things take so long And, like, they had that six-month repair, so maybe they were just like, ah, we're off schedule, but, like, let's just get out there. I don't know. It's the 1740s. Everyone died by the time they were 40 anyways. Like, that's just a real YOLO time. So these, like, seniors then were probably in their 30s. They're probably our age. Probably, yeah. (laughs) That were taken from the the hospitals. Yeah, the veterans. (laughs) Yikes. So by the time the storms ended, two ships had turned back and the remaining four had been separated. And the majority of the veterans, the 30-year-old veterans, and the young Marines were dead. So they didn't even really make it through the storm. However, the voyage continued. And by the end of April, almost everyone on board had scurvy. It was starting to become pretty advanced. And in April, 43 men died. And then nearly 90 men died in May. So things were escalating. 
Victims developed the trademark blood blisters all over their bodies, their legs swelled, their gums bled, and everyone was just debilitatingly exhausted. And as more men died, the scene on on the ships got worse. So rat infestations, damp living conditions were the least of the crew's worries. And they couldn't keep up, right, with like the cleaning and the everything because everyone's really sick and very tired. And dead bodies begin to pile up because the crew is physically too weak to lift them overboard. That is an alarming thought. Yes. Yep. So Richard Walter, who was the documentarian and chaplain, wrote that a dying sailor that had been wounded 50 years earlier. Okay, so he he was probably in his like 70s, 60s, 70s watched in horror as his wounds broke out afresh and appeared as if they had never been healed. So like as the body's deteriorating, the scars were probably reopening. Others reported that previously broken bones that had been healed essentially disintegrated and rebroke. Despite these horrific conditions and symptoms, three of the ships, the Centurion, the Gloucester, and the Trial, arrived at Juan Fernandez Island off the Chilean coast. The ships had previously agreed that if they got separated um, during their travels, that that is where they would meet. So like kids at a fair, they had a plan. <laughs> These three ships had originally held 1,200 men between them, but only 335 arrived at the island. Richard Walter wrote, to our great mortification, it was near 20 days after landing before the mortality was tolerably ceased. For the first 10 or 12 days, we rarely buried less than six each day, and many of those who survived were covered by very slow, insensible degrees. But luckily for the crew, the island was filled with wild plants, and they were great sources of vitamin C, and they also found a lot of fresh fish, so they ate really well, and they did rebuild their strength, and they stayed on the island for three months recovering their health. There was a general consensus that fresh fruits and vegetables could prevent scurvy by this point, but no one knew why. And of course, as the crew set out to finish their mission, probably brought fruit and vegetables, but they spoiled quickly or they ate them quickly, and the disease did resurface during the long voyage across the Pacific during the summer of 1742. In mid-August, they had to abandon one of their ships because they physically didn't have enough men left to operate it. And it's reported that the voyage lost up to five men each day to scurvy as they crossed the Pacific. But somehow, this ragtag crew that just won't quit finally docked in Canton, which is now known as Guangzhou, China, with 227 people left. So Captain, somehow, I don't know how, this guy must have had real grit. Captain George Anson did not lose sight of his original mission. And he found and ambushed and conquered a Spanish treasure ship on June 20th, 1743, in a battle that killed only three of his men somehow, which is pretty dang good considering they were probably very weak and very malnourished. (laughs) And because of this capture, the British Navy actually considered this deadly voyage a success, which is a bit hurtful. Anson returned to England, a rich and celebrated man, and was appointed First Lord of the Admiralty in 1751. But Anson allegedly never forgot about the nearly 2,000 men he had set off with. Only approximately 145 made it home. Forcefully set off with. Yeah. Forcefully. That's, I think, the most most tragic part about the whole story is that a lot of those people didn't want to be there. Kidnapped, forced to be there. 
taken from a hospital, probably not given much options. Same with the young Marines. Yeah. And that was like, that's four years of just watching your whole crew, pretty much your whole crew, waste away around you. Yeah. I would have just stayed on the island. Oh, yeah. Juan Fernandez for life. So that's the kind of story that makes you just want to go back in time and be like, it's vitamin C. Pack some lemons, make some jam, pine needle tea. Like all of these solutions were out there. But the communication, it was a communication problem, I think. Yeah. And this is a quote from Catherine Price's article that I like and I think summarizes the history of scurvy well. So one of the strangest things about the history of scurvy is that people kept figuring out cures and then forgetting them. 1535, the French explorer Jacques Cartier reported that after his ships had become locked in ice, we talked about this, his men were saved from scurvy by a special tea prepared by local Native Americans. I'm paraphrasing this quote a bit. In the 1500s and 1600s, several ship captains suggested there might be a connection between fruits and vegetables and scurvy. In 1734, a Dutch physician named Johannes Bockström came up with the term antiscorbutic, which means without scurvy, and used it to describe fresh vegetables. So he was describing vegetables as something that would help you be without scurvy. Mm -hmm. And even Anson made a point of loading up on oranges whenever possible, and his chaplain, Walter, praised Juan Fernandez Island for having almost all the vegetables that you need to prevent scurvy. And even though no one knew the actual cause or what about these foods made them antiscorbutic, many mariners recognized a connection. But yet people continue to die of scurvy. So there are plenty of reasons that the connection between vitamin C and scurvy kept getting discovered and then forgotten. But one that I haven't discussed yet is that at the time... And of course, they didn't know what vitamin C came from or even what vitamin C was, but it wasn't clear which foods were actually helpful So, or where vitamin C was actually found. So like, it feels obvious that oranges, kiwis, cabbage, broccoli, peppers have vitamin C, but milk and eggs have none. But liver and kidneys are actually a pretty good source, but not muscle meats. There's no vitamin C in muscle meats. Potatoes are a decent source. But pears actually aren't. And if you boil your potato or your broccoli in water, you're going to lose about half the vitamin C. And then if you chop the potato, let it sit there and oxidize for a bit, exposed to the air, and then boil it in a copper pot, now there's very little vitamin C. So while it feels obvious now, it really wasn't so clear at the time which foods were actually you know, preventing the scurvy. It's confusing. And nutrition is still confusing Mm -hmm. to a lot of people. It's still, there's still discoveries happening all the time. Yeah. And research is advancing and we're learning more and more things. So yeah, Mm -hmm. it would be very confusing to feel good after you have certain parts of like an animal or certain animal proteins, but then not others and certain vegetables, but not if they're cooked a certain way. It would be very difficult to pinpoint exactly what it was. Absolutely. And especially if you're, they're probably not cooking for themselves. You know what I mean? They're not like, oh, I put these things in this pot of stew and then I felt really good. And then when I had this thing that I made, I didn't feel so good. And then there's the leg. There's the three month leg between your leg vitamin C stores depleting and it would be a very frustrating process trying to figure out what was going on to add another layer of interest to the scurvy story in 1747 Dr. James Lind a Scottish physician 
conducted what is considered to be the first controlled trial and actually confirmed that lemons and limes were the superior treatment for scurvy. That's 1747. Remember, this is over 50 years before the Royal Navy would administer limes as scurvy prevention. 50 years before. That's wild. 50 years before. So Dr. Lin's discovery would be buried for decades because even though he technically proved that citrus fruits were effective, he didn't even really believe it himself. So let me explain. Dr. James Lind recruited 12 soldiers who were at similar stages in their scurvy and divided them into six groups. Each group, it was controlled. So each group ate the exact same foods and lived in the exact same quarters. And the only difference was the treatment that they received. So each pair was assigned a different popular scurvy treatment at the time. They were given either a quart of hard cider, 25 drops of vitriol, two spoonfuls of vinegar, a half a pint of seawater, two oranges and one lemon, or a paste made out of garlic, mustard seed, balsam, radish, and gum. I don't know what it is. With the exception of the citrus fruit, which ran out in less than a week, Lind administered the treatments for 14 full days. Despite having a much shorter course of treatment, the men who were administered the citrus fruits recovered much more quickly than the others, so much so that they actually began helping take care of the others. So they really made like a full turnaround. So after this experiment, Lind wrote a book with a short and sweet title of A Treatise of the Scurvy, containing an inquiry into the nature, causes, and cure of that disease, together with a critical chronological view of what has been published on the subject. Short and sweet. sweet. It's basically like an SLR of scurvy with his own findings. In the entire 500-page book, Lynn dedicated only five paragraphs to his clinical trial, and he squeezed the most important result into just one sentence that basically got lost in the rest of the book. He wrote, as I shall have occasion elsewhere to take notice of the effects of other medications in this disease, I shall here only observe that the results of all my experiments was that oranges and lemons were the most effectual remedies for this distemper at sea. He should have made that the title. (laughs) I know, he should have. Oranges and lemons are best for scurvy. Even he didn't see how important his results were. And instead, he went on to describe his other theory, which was that scurvy was a digestive disease caused by blocked sweat glands, which doesn't even make sense. Don't know where he got that from, but he thought that lemon juice mixed with wine and sugar might be effective against scurvy because it cleared out sweat glands. Okay. Yeah, he should have kept that one out of there. It makes him look silly. He was <laughs> so close. Like, he, he had so the close. cure. He did the first clinical trial, and then he was just like, I don't know about that. In 1795, a physician named Gilbert Blaine convinced the British Royal Navy to issue some form of lemon juice to its sailors. Oh, another fun fact. Lemon and limes were both referred to as lemons at this time. Okay. I know. That's interesting. In 17, what was it? 1795. Oh. And so the sailors were actually issued lime juice at this time. And I didn't know this, but that's why they have the nickname Limeys. Did you know that they were like British people are sometimes called limeys? I don't think it's like a flattering <laughs> thing. I think it's a British thing. I've never heard that Originally, before. they would call people in the British Navy limeys, but then it just okay. became this like colloquial thing where they call British people limeys. But I've never heard that in my life. So that's why they have the nickname limeys. And 
the rest is history. Scurvy was done. Just kidding. Yay. No, I'm oh, joking. No. <laughs> <laughs> the disease continued to emerge during the gold rush, different wars and other long voyages, despite the fact that the cure was pretty much known and confirmed since the late 1700s. Even into the 20th century, scurvy continued to pop up in places like prisons. Check out our prison episode. Refugee camps in prisoners of war, and it even popped up in wealthy families in the early 1900s for a bit because formula, baby formula, became a thing, but it was made with pasteurized cow's milk at the time, so there was even that small amount of natural vitamin C was destroyed. And I actually couldn't find a lot of info on this. I was like, whoa, this is so cool. So I want to investigate infant formula stuff for another episode. It's a good idea. I feel like that's that could be a loaded episode. It could be for sure. So then I just want to finish off by asking and then answering my own question. Do people still get scurvy? And they definitely do. So Dr. Kayla Dagdar was a medical student at McMaster University when she began looking through medical records from Hamilton, Ontario, covering a nine-year period. Her results showed that 52 patients with low vitamin C levels were in the system, and 13 of them had actually been diagnosed with symptoms of scurvy. Wait, what nine-year period was this? This article was released in 2020. Okay, so very recent. Very recently. Yeah, this is like now, basically, mm. like 40 minutes from Toronto. <laughs> so most of these patients had poor diets due to a number of factors. So eating disorders, alcohol abuse, mental illness, social isolation, some intentional dietary restrictions and dependence on others for food. So when you put oh. it in that context, it makes sense that it's still around. Yeah. Um, there's so many other different factors. The dependence on others for food. I want to focus on that last part because it's so sad. It is. And there are pediatric cases. So, you know, kids are the most dependent on others for food. And there are some pediatric cases where scurvy has developed in extremely picky eaters. So there's mm -hmm. a, a three-year-old boy in Russia who was the subject of a case study who was eating exclusively things like rice and grains um, and nearly completely avoided meat, fruit, and vegetables. And he got scurvy. And there was an 11-month-old baby in Spain whose parents were feeding him an almond milk formula that contained no vitamin C. Oh, no. Yeah. I think they're both okay, and it was corrected. Okay, good. I was yeah. going to say, I think um, like almond milk or some uh, some of those beverages mm -hmm. um, are now fortified, whereas before, when they first hit the market, they were not. They I weren't. don't know how fortified they are, though, so you have to check. But And I think it's um, only certain brands, like the big brands, like Silk or the larger ones are mm -hmm. typically fortified, but I think I don't want to like say any brands, but some of the like newer, smaller ones or like mm -hmm. a local almond milk or a local oat milk would probably not be fortified. Yeah, oh, that's really sad. And I was actually going to uh, just mention that like for the picky eating thing, this is actually mm -hmm. a huge thing with in the ADHD population because there's sensory issues around certain foods. And oftentimes individuals with ADHD or autism will, will have safe foods. And right. so they'll kind of refer back to those for most of their meals. And a lot of times when it's kids, parents will just let them do it because they won't eat anything else. Mm -hmm. And a lot of times ADHD symptoms can be triggered because of nutrient deficiencies. Vicious cycle. Vicious cycle. Wow. But it's just interesting that you mentioned that. That is interesting. I remember watching, I think it was like a Vice documentary about someone who just only ate pizza. Like that was it. 
day and night, every single day, three times a day. Pizza, pizza, pizza. How was their life? I wonder if they had any any micronutrient deficiencies. (laughs) I don't know. They probably are okay. They're probably, I mean, there's tomato sauce. Yeah. (laughs) There's cheese. There's There's meat. Yeah. And gets meat on there. I actually think it was just cheese pizza. Okay. It was a sensory thing for sure. Just cheese pizza. Okay. So what do you need to do to make sure you never get scurvy? Try your best to meet the recommended dietary intake for vitamin C, which is 75 to 90 milligrams per day. Or if you're pregnant, it's going to go up to 120 milligrams a day. Yeah. And then also lactating, I think is higher. And lactating. smoking. And smoking. Yes. Also just please, I'm sorry, quit smoking. Yeah. You can't deal with that oxidative stress on a daily basis. That's tough. Too much. Tough on your body. Too much. And this amount of vitamin C can be easily obtained from consuming a single orange, a large kiwi, a red pepper, a cup of broccoli, a cup of Brussels sprouts, a large lemon, or really any variety of fruits and vegetables. Or if you're really picky and have sensory food issues, you could take a multi, talk to your doctor. Make a margarita. Make a margarita. Talk to your doctor about that too. (laughs) Yes, for sure. And that's it. That's it for scurvy. Wow. That was an interesting story. There was a lot to unpack there. I know. It's just like it's worse than I expected as a disease. I feel like I didn't have much of a concept of what was happening beyond the gums. Just what seems like such a simple solution. It's interesting to look at it from a historical perspective and be like, there's all these different factors that actually really complicated the solution for scurvy. I think it also shows you how important dietary research is, but also how critical good communication skills can be and communicating accurate information. Absolutely. Evidence-based information. Yeah. Yep. Because it is wild to me that it went on for this long, considering they knew so much sooner. So much sooner. I don't know when the pine needle tea was developed because they were using oral history. Like the indigenous people were using oral history to pass it down. But at the very least, that was documented in 1536. And it wasn't issued in the British Navy until 1797, I believe. Well, that was a missed opportunity. I'm glad we know now to have our vitamin C. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Thank you, Sarah. That was really good. You're welcome. I do have a question for you for our next episode. Ooh, okay. Are you ready? Did you sneak a peek at it? I have no idea. Okay. It might be like challenging to think of something on the spot, but have you ever purchased any health or wellness product that ended up being a big flop. Wow. Absolutely. I have. Name them for me. <laughs> like, okay. Like I, I've definitely bought a lot of things over my long interest in health that are, like not maybe a huge flop, but just, I was like, oh my God, collagen is going to change my life. And then I <laughs> yeah. bought it and I used it every day. And I'm like, wow, my life is literally the exact same. <laughs> yeah. Because just if like you get that. enough protein, like <laughs> you were, t- are you talking about eating collagen or putting it on your face? Uh, no, collagen powder, like in collagen powder, yeah, smoothies, things like that. If you are getting enough protein generally in your diet, yeah. you do not need collagen. It is not going to build your collagen stores. What's yes. going to not deplete your collagen stores, but impact them is if you're just not getting enough protein generally, not if you're not getting enough collagen. Collagen. Yes. It's like very similar to the vitamin C thing. Like if you get extra, not it's not going to do anything for you. You're just going to pee it out. No. Like we can't use extra vitamin C. We can just use the amount that we need. What about you? Mine's actually more of a beauty one. and I still use it on a okay. regular basis, but it doesn't do anyway. ish. <laughs> what is it? A jade uh, roller. What toner. Is it? Toner. Oh, toner. Face okay. toner. I 
I have this like it's rose water. I think it's cocoa kind toner. Mm-hmm. And I love the smell of it. Got it because I thought I needed toner. Yeah. Started using it. I was like, man, I really like the smell of this, but it does nothing. Some people swear by toner. I don't use one. And when I what have does it bought do? it, I'm like, it tones. Tones? What <laughs> I do don't mean? know. I don't know. I don't know. But it I have tones bought it my in the face. past. And then I never like repurchase because I'm like, what is this? Why? I don't know. It's just another step. There are so many beauty ones. Like when you said beauty, I was like, okay, I've done a jade roller. I thought it yes. felt nice, but it then I don't so use nice, it. Though. And I don't notice a difference. Same with uh, like a dry brush I tried once. And that's just like you like brush your body and it's supposed to, you know, make you have perfect skin. <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> um, I'm trying to think of other ones. I definitely ordered like wax, leg waxing oh, yeah? uh, stuff online. And that was brutal. It was supposed to be, I think, like an all organic such BS. And did it even remove um, any hairs? Like, was it well, just it was really... like the hot wax and I could oh. not do it. I got it on my leg and I was like, I can't, I can't, I can't, I can't it remove it. <laughs> I know someone else has to rip those for you for sure. Yeah, especially like the first few times until you get used to it. Yeah, no way. Ugh, and that was the first you. time I'd ever wax my leg. I actually got my sister to tear it off. I think she enjoyed it a little she too probably much. probably did, yeah. <laughs> also, have you ever seen that Aztec like clay mask that I feel had a moment five years ago or so, maybe 10 years ago. It's like it comes in this container and it's just like this clay mask that's supposed Mm -hmm. to be good. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. No, yeah. I know what you mean. Himalayan pink salt. Himalayan pink salt. It's just salt, guys. It's just salt. It's just salt. And it actually isn't fortified for the most part. So there's, I know, people think it has higher concentrations of minerals and stuff. And you know what? I think it does. Minute higher concentrations that make no difference in the grand scheme of things and you could become iodine deficient which is not good all right thanks everyone bye goodbye thanks for listening to this episode of unsavory you can find all the references and materials used to put this episode together in our show notes at unsavorypodcast.com This is an independently produced podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, we would love it if you would rate, review, follow, and share our show with your true crime and food-loving friends. If you'd like to donate to the podcast, you can sign up as a donor through our Patreon link in our bio. To keep up to date with the podcast, follow us on Instagram and Twitter at unsavorypodcast. If you have an idea for an episode or segment, email us at unsavorypod at gmail.com. This podcast was recorded and edited by Earworm Radio. We highly recommend their services for all of your podcasting needs. You can learn more about them at earwormradio.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with Bowlin Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowlin Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlinBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.